please turn to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 12. As we continue our story in the life of David, we now look at a study that I've entitled, The Chastening of the Lord. See, David, as we read last week, had come to a point in his life where he felt that he was successful. He began to feel the pleasures of success, the indulgence of wealth, of women, and glory. And being that he was now at this point where he had rest, where he wasn't depending on God's saving him from the giant Goliath or the King Saul who would seek to kill him. He began to put his faith and trust in something other than the Lord, but in his own riches, in his own wealth and fame. And when he did that, when he got his eyes off of God, he began to forget about the commandments of the Lord, about the love of God. And he becomes enticed by his own lust. Last week we studied how David was there at home at his palace when he should have been there at the time when the kings go to war. He was staying at home, sleeping in. And when he would arise and get up and he would look down, he saw there Bathsheba who was bathing. And as she was bathing, David had a moment, an opportunity to turn away, to turn towards what was right. He already had seven wives who he could have ran to at at that time. But instead, he gazed on this woman who was not his and continued to watch her until the lust overwhelmed him. And then he sought after her. He sought to make her his own, so he ended up committing adultery with her. And the woman's husband, his name was Uriah. And Uriah was one of uh, David's soldiers fighting David's battles for him. And David had his fall, the fall of a king. And then in God's sovereignty, Bathsheba becomes pregnant because of that supposed to be one night stand. And because she becomes pregnant from David, David, the the fear and the shame build up in him where he does not want to let this become public. So in his craftiness, he invited Uriah away from the battle, invited him home, blessed him with this party and got him drunk. And in this revelry, he tells Uriah, Uriah, go home and have some time with your wife and spend time with her, thinking that Uriah would sleep with his wife and that the idea would be that the child would be Uriah's when in fact it was David's. And that first night Uriah says, no, uh, he doesn't go home without telling David he sleeps outside. And it's informed to David that Uriah never went home. But in fact, he slept outside because he didn't want to indulge in the pleasures of home life when his men were still on the battlefield. And so David, again, a second night, invites Uriah and tries to get him drunk and sends him to Bathsheba. And again, Uriah does not go home. So now David, in fear, wrote a letter 
gave it to Uriah sealed and told Uriah to give the letter to Joab. And Joab, when he received it, read what was Uriah's own death sentence. That they were to put Uriah at the hottest part of the battle. And once they realized he was there, to pull back from him so that he would die. Now this was a conspiracy, a murder plot. One in the Bible, one that is truth. And now David at this point thinks he's good. Thinks, all right, that's it. Nobody's going to find out. Nobody knows. He takes Bathsheba as his wife. She's pregnant. And David is probably pretty pleased with himself. But at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 11, in verse 27, the very last verse, it says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Continuing now, we'll start with verse one of chapter 12 in the New King James Version. It says this, then the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him, now notice at this point, for a brief moment, we've seen Nathan the prophet. He oversees some of David's plans Remember uh, a few chapters ago, David sought to build the temple and Nathan was uh, then summoned by David and David asked him if I could build the temple and Nathan said, yeah, sure, go ahead. And then that night Nathan was visited by God and God told him, no, go back to David and tell him not to build the temple that his son would. And again, we see here, Nathan, this prophet is being sent to David with a message That message continuing on in verse one says, Nathan says this, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. Verse two, the rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So Nathan gives this message to David, this parable. And notice the contrast of these two men. There's one rich and one who's poor. The rich man had exceedingly many, but the poor man had nothing except one. The poor man, this little ewe lamb that he had, it ate of his own food. It lay in his bosom. It drank from his own cup. But on the other hand, the rich man, he refused to take from his own flock to give to a traveling wayfarer. So instead he takes the poor man's. So two very absolute opposite characteristics of these two men, one a humble giver and the other a cruel, selfish thief. And when David hears this message, it says this in verse five. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. See here, David is quick to see the injustice which had been taken place in the scenario that Nathan gave him. David's desire to have this rich man killed 
but not after he repaid the poor man four times what was taken from him. And notice how David hit the nail on the head and states that this rich man had no pity. That word pity, it means to have compassion, gentleness, or patience, but to have none of that, to have no care. And now, isn't it a great irony how, as human beings, we see so easily in others that thing which we ourselves are often guilty of? We get bothered when we see other people committing that same sin, perhaps even vocalizing our hatred of certain actions. See David here, when he says, this man shall surely die. David is playing the hypocrite. That word hypocrite, it comes from a term dealing with theater. You see, back in Greek theater, in Greek plays, there was the hypocrite who was an actor who wore the masks with certain emotions on it, whether it be a sad or a happy face or a surprised face. And all the while, this actor would be wearing this act, this mask. It would be fake. What they were representing was not true to the life that they actually lived. That's what acting is. And that's what a hypocrite does. You see, hypocrites will preach one thing and act out in contradiction to their preaching. A hypocrite will condemn an action all the meanwhile they themselves do those actions that they are condemning. You see, I too am guilty of this. I too at times am hypocritical. And I have to ask Jesus for forgiveness when I do this. I don't want to misrepresent Christ. I don't want to give a black eye to Christ and his church. You see, hypocrites are a reason why certain people say they won't go to church. They say, no, I'm not going to go there. It's full of hypocrites. So my response is, well, we could always add one more. You see, yeah, the church is full of people who are sinners. But it's a spiritual hospital. Now, healthy people don't go to a hospital, right? Sick people go to a hospital. So it works that way for the church. Those who are sinners, they need to be going to church. I need to be going to church because I need to be healed by the Lord. Jesus had some very strong words against hypocrites. Do you remember when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees? Let me read a little bit of Matthew chapter 23 from you. When Jesus really rebuked the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, verses 23 through, 30, through 28, it reads this out of the New Living Translation. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and of self-indulgence. 
You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus' words. Often in times, people will think of Jesus as uh, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But I wouldn't want to be on the enemy's side in that case. See, David here is just like these Pharisees. Trying to present himself to be this glorious king who is always seeking after God's own heart. Yet inside, he had walked away from the Lord. He had sinned. So David here, he plays the hypocrite. He says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And then Nathan in response in verse seven. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you so much more. See, it's often dangerous when any person is blessed with this abundant lifestyle. See, David had all these things, the throne, wives, and God said he would have given him more if he would have just asked. See, Jesus taught that it was hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say it was impossible. He said it was hard. And remember his disciples, when they realized this, they said, well, then who can enter? He said, by Christ, all things are possible. One of the ministry lessons that I've learned from my pastors at Calvary Chapel are these three rules. And David broke all of them. Don't touch the money, number one. Don't touch the money. Number two, don't touch the women. And if you're a woman, that would be also male. Don't touch the males. And then thirdly, do not touch the glory, that being the glory of God. And in ministry, those are the three great falls that you hear of from men and and women involved in ministry. Money, lust, pride. These things have a way of pulling us down so that we cannot be used by the Lord. May God rid those things from our hearts. We pray. In verse nine, Nathan continues, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. You see the first charge here against David was disobedience to God, number one. He disobeyed and despised the commandment of the Lord. Secondly, he had Uriah killed, he murdered him. And then thirdly, he took his wife, he committed adultery. You see, these things that 
for sins, which were listed in the Ten Commandments that he should have obeyed. God didn't have these rules to keep David from living a good life. He had these rules and these commandments so that David, when he followed and obeyed the Lord, that he could live the good life to keep him from loss and pain and suffering, to keep him from that separation from God. In verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Remember in that parable, David was the man who was supposed to be rich and he had so much and he could have just indulged in what he had, but instead he took this wife, which was all Uriah had was one wife. David took her, just like in that parable, how that man saw the little ewe lamb that this man loved and the rich man stole that. In verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. See, in these last three verses, we have the chastening of the Lord. In verse 10, the Lord chastened David by a perpetual violence in David's family tree. The sword would never depart from their house. And we'll get into that later on as we continue to study 2 Samuel. How violence just riddled David and his family. The second chastening in verse 11 was that now the enemy would come from David's own family. The third chastening from verse 11 as well, was that David would have his own wives taken from him. Later on, we will read how Absalom, one of David's sons, in rebellion to his father David, will take his concubines to be his own. He'll steal them. And then lastly, the fourth chastening here, is that David would be publicly humiliated before all of Israel. And now with these things in verse 13, so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Notice David recognizes right away before he sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, before he sinned against Israel, he first sinned against the Lord. David in verse 13 is confessing his sin. Though David has gone to these great depths of sin, we see right here conviction, which is good. It's good that David would return to seeking the Lord's heart. You see, there's conviction which draws us closer to the Lord because we realize that we've sinned against the Lord. But there's also another word, condemnation. Now, condemnation is the type of guilt that Satan will use in a person's life to drive them away from the Lord, where a person will be so guilty and so shameful of what they've done that they'll say, you know what, I'm too sinful. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to have fellowship or I'm not going to pray because I don't deserve it. That's a lie from the devil. See, conviction 
is from the Holy Spirit drawing us and making us realize we need to be right next to the Lord the moment we sin. Going back to Jesus' feet and saying, Father, I'm a sinner, forgive me. So continuing in verse 13, after David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. You see, mercy is right there, right next to confession, right next to conviction, right next to asking for forgiveness. God has taken away, he's put away David's sin. In verse 14, however, because by this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. You see, when we misrepresent God to man, to mankind, we give God's enemies an occasion to blaspheme God. So because of this great misrepresentation of who God is, the last punishment, the fifth punishment towards David would be that he would lose the life of his firstborn from Bathsheba. And this was a heavy consequence, grave. It says, continuing on in verse 15, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of the house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. See now David, after hearing these five punishments, which were upon him, including the death of his son, he turned to fasting to God. He was hoping that perhaps God would relent from his judgment, from his justice. David sought to be met with the mercy of God. You see, there are recorded times in the Bible when God actually relented from judging people. Do you remember in the wilderness when the Israelites, they made the golden calf and they had this great party orgy revelry as Moses was getting the 10 commandments. And then as Moses was coming down this mountain, he heard the, the big party going down, down the mountain and he asked Joshua, Joshua, what is this noise? Or Joshua asked Moses, what do you think it is? And Moses was telling him, this is not the sound of war, but the sound of revelry, of drunkenness. And then God, speaking with Moses, said, okay, you know what, Moses? I'm going to wipe out all the Israelites, and I'm going to create a new line of Israelites from you. And Moses, interceding, said, God, please spare them. And God said, okay. I'm going to relent from my judgment on them simply because Moses prayed for this mercy. So again, also in the Bible, do you guys remember Jonah? He had a message for the Ninevites that he was to deliver after finally fleeing from the Lord and getting eaten by the great fish and getting spewed back up where he needed to be. He simply went to the Ninevites went on this hill and preached to them. He simply said, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And then he turned around to walk away and he sat on the hill to watch the fireworks. Perhaps expecting them not to receive any type of mercy. And then after the king of Nineveh proclaimed a nationwide fast, God relented from bringing judgment to Nineveh And there was a great revival in Nineveh. 
You see, there are times when prayer and fasting has allowed God, not allowed God, but allowed us an opportunity to see God relent from his judgment. So maybe the question is, well, does God change his mind? The Bible teaches us no. God does not change. God is immutable, meaning he does not change. You see, God already knows when people are going to ask for mercy. So by telling them what will happen to them, he sometimes gives people the choice and opportunity for mercy and grace in their life. And he gives us an opportunity to ask for that. You see the difference between grace and mercy? Mercy is when you do not get a punishment that you deserve. Whereas grace is you getting a blessing despite the fact that you don't deserve it. We should ask for God's mercy in our life. We need it. David was fasting for this mercy. It says in verse 18, Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, for he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. You see, I myself, sometimes when reading God's word, I don't understand completely this loss of of life, of the child being innocent. So when I don't understand God's ways, I have to follow back on what I do know of God, his attributes. See, I know that God is all loving. I know that God is all good. I know that God is all just, meaning he's a just God, a righteous God, and that whatever God does, this is his attribute of justice. And I have to believe that God, his ways are higher than our own. In verse 20, after David hears the news that his son is dead, it says, So David arose from the ground and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house and when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Look at David's response to this great punishment from the Lord. Number one, he repents. Number two, he anoints himself to return to service. And then thirdly, David worships the Lord. How do we handle the chastening of the Lord? What do we respond with? Have you ever felt the chastening of the Lord? I have. And I wonder how hard it was for David to submit to God at this point. One of his most precious and loved ones was taken from him by the Lord. I wonder also even how Moses handled it when the Lord punished him. Remember Moses in the wilderness there, he misrepresented God. God told him when the people were complaining that there wasn't enough provision and water, God told him, look, go speak to this stone, this rock. 
and water was going to come forth from it. And then Moses went out there in anger against the people and he struck the rock and water came forth. And then God pulled Moses aside. He said, Moses, step into my office. I told you to speak to the rock and you struck the rock. So because of what you've done, you're not gonna be able to lead the children of Israel into the promised land, Moses. Joshua will. And Moses never got to step foot into the promised land during his lifetime. After 40 years of being in the wilderness, God said, okay, you wanna misrepresent me? I'm taking that away from you. See, God's chastening may seem so hard to bear at times. Where you feel like the one thing that you've desired so greatly and you know God is closing that door because of sin in your life. And you know it's your fault. I've experienced this because I failed. And I've seen consequences because of my failures, because of my sin. And those are some hard to swallow pills. I've looked up some verses when it might seem so hard to bear the chastening of the Lord. You could write the book and the chapter and verses these are on. You don't need to turn in your Bible there. But in Proverbs 3, verses 11 through 12, it said, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Again, in Psalm 94, verse 12, blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law. And lastly, Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11, reads this. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, the reason why God chastens us is because as his children, he loves us. The same way that a mother and a father will discipline their son so that they don't grow up to be spoiled and thinking they could get whatever they want and get away with whatever they want. They will chastise them to be corrected. See, for me personally, it was the chungla and the belt and I hated it and I cried and I pleaded for grace and mercy with my parents at times. But because they loved me, they knew that they had to spank me because they saw that I needed it in order to realize that I can't get whatever I want and that I can't get away with whatever I want. 
You see, God loves us. May we have that eternal perspective when we receive the chastening from the Lord, that it is because God is creating us to be more like his son, Jesus. See, David recognizes that as a man, he cannot always tell what God is going to do. So because of this, he fasted. Now, once he knew the will of the Lord, once the child was dead, he accepted God's will. So where's David's now hope? It's to one day see his son. Look at verse 21. Then his servants said to him, What is it that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. You see, David at the end of this, he had the right perspective, the eternal perspective, in believing that one day he would return to his son. He would get to see him in the afterlife. And that's the kind of perspective we need, the eternal perspective. Not thinking so much on these things that are temporary, on what's today, what's going to last only for a moment. But may we be eternally minded. And in verse 24, Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now, The Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So now after the mourning process, after picking up the pieces of their heart and returning to the Lord, they have a child again, David and Bathsheba. And God is gracious. You see, after all this craziness of sin and murder, God blessed their womb. And Solomon would go on, their son, to build the temple of the Lord. We still see God's grace. You see, Solomon, his name, it means peace. And I believe that was what God was bringing into David and Bathsheba's life at their time. And then they also gave him a second name. Solomon, his name was also Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. And it's that reminder that David and his family were beloved of the Lord. May we not forget what David is known as, as a man after God's own heart. God is a God of love. In verse 26, it says, Now Joab, fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and I have taken the city's water supply. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. So now we kind of go into this shoot of an off story from this chapter. There's a battle going on. David's commander, Joab, is about to take it, about to take the city. So he lets David know, hey, we're about to win this battle. And king, I want you to be here so that you can get the credit. And in verse 29, so David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it and took it. Then he took the king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones, and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance, and he brought out the people who were in it, 
and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. And then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. So David is conquering here his enemies. Something to note about the Ammonites. They were a people who, in religious ceremony, would take their children to the idols like Baal. Baal with his hand stretched out, this golden idol. And they would place their children on this idol so that their children would be burned in sacrifice. And here in God's justice, he has David to have them cross over the brickwork, this iron furnace. And David continues to be used of the Lord. So as we see, God is not someone who we can play games with when it comes to sin. Because we are his children, God loves us. And he desires to be merciful unto us. For extra credit, I would encourage you guys tonight to read Psalm chapter 51. Psalm 51 is written by David. It's a song after Nathan the prophet goes to David and rebukes him for the sin with Bathsheba. David begins to write this. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, this is the heart of a believer asking God to forgive them of sins. And for us tonight, it is a blessing and a privilege that we do have to be able to go to our loving Father and say, Father, I'm sorry. I've sinned. Please forgive me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your forgiveness, Father. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to pay for our sins. Lord God, when we should have been punished greatly, Lord, your son, Jesus, took on that punishment so that we don't have to live a life separated from you. Father, may we return to you in our hearts, in our minds. If there is anyone listening now and you would like to receive Christ as your Lord and your Savior, meaning that not only do you seek salvation, but you seek to be submitted to Jesus Christ, to let him call the shots, if you would like to receive him, to receive that forgiveness, just follow me in this prayer. Dear God, I confess to you that I am a sinner. Forgive me of all of my sins. I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and use me. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, let me uh, end with one more word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I do pray for anyone who feels convicted. I pray that you would encourage them, Lord God, of your love. Encourage them of your grace. Father, restore them to you. And Lord God, may condemnation not be a part of our life. I pray, Father, that the enemy would not be allowed, Father, to use guilt to separate us from you. May that be driven out by your love. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing one more song. this week and use the name of Jesus as you go about your day and converse with others and we will see you uh, the women we will see each other on Friday and everybody else we will see you here at my house on Sunday morning love you guys God bless